Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is the Gem Jam, where we're doing episode by episode recap of the 1980s cartoon Gem of the Holograms, because both it and the comic are truly outrageous. And you know what? Let's just set the cartoon aside now. Let's just talk about the comic for like ever. I'm cool with that. Are you guys cool with that? I'm, I'm cool with it. So this is kind of awkward right now because as of recording, Misfits number five and Gem and the Holograms 26 aren't out yet at the time of recording, but we're going to sort of be talking about a big retrospective of the Gem comic. And to help us out for that, we bought, um, we bought, we bought, we paid money for. I did not receive my check. We asked a very special guest to come on and talk about the comic with us. We figured who better to do so than Kelly Thompson, writer of IDW Gem. How's it going? Hi. That check's in the mail, by the way. I don't believe you. I think I'm here for free. What a rip off. Thanks for having me on. I love your show. So I'm super pumped to be here. We are super pumped to have you and super excited. And anytime you have commented on us, we always have started like squealing and talking about it for about the next 20 minutes. There's a lot of screaming. Yeah, we scream a lot on this show. In fact, that's most of our behind the scenes work. It's just screaming. If we're going to start talking about the gem comic, we need to start going a little bit back to basics here. So Kelly. Yes. What got you into gem? Was that on TV at the time for you? Or uh, or how did you find this phenomenon? I'm a little older than Sophie. So while Sophie mostly saw it, I mean, I guess she was really young when she saw it. And then she saw it on reruns like later. The only reason I watched it or saw it on reruns later was when I started thinking I might get to write it. And then it was a super power rewatch of everything. But yeah, I originally saw it when I was a kid. You know, it's one of those things where you don't realize it at the time. You just think, oh, this is this cool thing I like. But in retrospect, like it was obvious why I was drawn to it. It was filled with women. And most things that I was watching in the mid 80s were not filled with women. You know, it was like G.I. Joe and you had Scarlett and she was the best, but there she was one chick, you know, and then later Lady J or CoverGirl came on, but like never at the same time. Like you almost never got an episode with more than one woman in it. And I think the only other thing around that time was like She-Ra maybe that had a lot of women. But, you know, it was just like it, with Jem, it was so matter of fact, you know, like th- there was it wasn't part of the plot. It just was how it was. It was wall to wall with female characters. And that's not something as a kid that you realize like why you're responding to it and why it seems so special. But in retrospect, for sure, like obviously no wonder I liked it. At the time, did like kid you have an understanding of how weird this show was or was it only once you look back at that you were like, uh. <laughs> it's true that Gem is particularly weird on a rewatch as an adult. But if you look at any of those cartoons, again, you find a lot of stuff where you're like, really? Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I recently bought the Dungeons and Dragons DVD was on sale for like $7 on Amazon. So I was like, all right, I'm getting it. So I bought it. I have that. It's so great. We were rewatching the first episode. And did you know, do you, I mean, maybe you guys have seen it more recently than me, but like the entire setup, which should be maybe a two episode thing of them in the real world and then them going into the thing and then them realizing they're in another world. It's not even in the cartoon. It's just in the opening. That's it. Wait, that's not covered anywhere at all. I, I assumed it was. Oh, scene one, line one, location one, they're in the Badlands or whatever. Of 
of Dungeons and Dragons world. Yes. All the setup is in the credits. That's it. And like, that's so insane to me, especially because when I think of Dungeons and Dragons, other than, you know, the costumes and some little thing, like my boyfriend and I always going, Yumi! Like making that sound that they make about that unicorn, like that boy yelling for that unicorn all the time. Like, other than that, <laughs> the thing that's sort of indelible in my brain about it is them getting there. But it was just the credits. That's it. I mean, I guess that makes sense why it's in my brain because you just see some snippet of it every time you turned it on. But it's so weird to me that it just, there was no prep. There was no establishing who these characters were before they got there. None of it. So a lot of these shows had some weird things. So I don't think Jem, Jem's not alone in that. Um, although it certainly is a, it gets to place for sure in weirdness. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jem and the Holograms just had five episodes to introduce you to everybody. You'd think that would be overkill, but I feel like there's a lot of suspension of disbelief like, okay, listen, I'm going to introduce you to some weird stuff first and you have to just take that and then the misfits are going to steal instruments and start throwing them at people on a uh, cliffside car chase. Yeah, it's pretty good. It reminds me when we first did the first issue, my first draft included the misfits in the first issue too. And it was like really jam packed. And I had gone ahead and John, the editor, John Barber and I, we had been supposed to talk about it um, before I really got started. But like a couple things got moved and it kept getting pushed back. And I was really anxious to get started and scared to death, by the way. And so I just sort of went ahead and, and I sent him a draft. And I'm like, listen, I just I had a very clear idea about what I thought I wanted in here. So this is just the first pass. We'll probably change a lot, like, you know, with your notes or whatever. And I just put misfits in there because I assumed like, oh, we've got to get them all in issue one. And uh, he was like, no, nah, no. Nah. He was like, I think as long as they show up in issue two, he was like, I wasn't even sure we were going to show Jem in issue one. I was like, I think we got to show Jem in issue one. And he was like, yeah, you're probably, you're probably right. You're probably right. So yeah, but in, I mean, it ended up turning out great because issue two became very much about the misfits. And that was a great like reason to show up for the second issue. It, it turned out the way I think it was supposed to be. But I was just thinking a lot about that when I found this Dungeons and Dragons weirdness and everything. So Gem and the Holograms is a comic book. That was kind of a collaborative thing with Sophie Campbell, right? It was definitely. I mean, I don't think you can uh, overstate her involvement in the design and the recreation and the rebuilding of those characters. Famously, I've said this on other podcasts before, but like Stormer being the size she is was 100% Sophie, if only because I'm a fat person. And so I'm always very, you know, I, I always shy away from this idea of like self-author insert kind of things. So I never would have suggested, you know, oh yeah, let's make Stormer a beautiful fat woman. And that's so great. And like, I never would have had the balls to do that, especially because I was so new to comics. And so we started doing these designs and they were so beautiful. And one of them was Stormer was pretty fat. And I was like, oh God, I was like, I I'm almost uncomfortable with this. Like it's too close to home, you know? And then I was like, ah, I don't have to worry about it. Hasbro's never going to let her get away with that. They're definitely going to go, oh, thin her up a little bit and we'll be good. Nope, not a peep. Just that was it. That was how Stormer looked. I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> And it turned out to be the greatest thing. That was so great to lean into that, too. It ended up being such a great character choice for her. It's amazing. It's so amazing. And, you know, you can see the brilliance of Sophie over just everything. You know, she touches things and it's just sort of magic. And we were very lucky to have her from the beginning kind of building it. It was awesome. It was awesome. And she and I had been sort of trying to work on something here and there for a couple of years. So it was really exciting that this was the place where it all sort of came together. So I guess that 
that brings up uh, something that I've been wondering, which is uh, how much input does Hasbro have on the comic? They've been really great with us. I think that there's a weird thing with licensors in my experience so far where if you can really convince them early on that you know what you're doing and that you respect their property and that you love it and that you want to do this great thing with it. And if you can show them that you have something really great to say with it, you tend to get a lot more rope. And I think that very strong first opening issues with Sophie and I, they really had a lot of confidence in what we were trying to do. And they gave us a lot of room. Having worked with a lot more licensors since, you know, Hasbro, working with Hasbro was my, was really my first thing. I mean, I'd done a graphic novel, but um, I'm sorry if you can hear my cuckoo clock in the background. Um, it's going to go off 10 times. So that's unfortunate. Um it, they they had been I, you know I it was my first big thing doing this except for I had a graphic novel out that that wasn't released yet but I'd already sort of you know finished it or was finishing it and um, so it was a big deal for me but I didn't realize how lucky I was like since then I've worked with a lot of licensors who are far more difficult Hasbro is very good we had a couple weird fights early on that I swear to God were all about the length of skirts and it was all about Sophie and I wanting them to be shorter and we're like you know I mean we didn't want them to be indecent or anything but we're like listen they're pop stars like have you guys seen pop stars like pop stars don't go and do that like three finger rule above the knee so they can get to class like they're fashion trendsetters like you gotta give us a little room here and uh, there were a lot of shorts and pants and tights a lot more in the early issues I think because we were having this trouble with them like we must have gone back and forth 10 times over that final splash page of the first gem reveal because it was all the skirt was always too short it was too much skin it was all this stuff so but I mean it's it's deeply ironic because even though it drove Sophie and I a bit crazy you know at the same time I actually love that that was their concern was like this is for young girls and this is a positive thing you know we don't want a lot of sexy you know because it easily could have gone the other way with a different licensor like oh we need to really sex this up and they were so the opposite of that which I really appreciate in retrospect you know and uh, yeah we just other than that we, we had a few couple things that I'm not really going to mention for fear of meh. But on the whole, they have been incredible. I have to imagine that Sophie's fashion choices and art style are such a force of nature. I can't imagine that they could really stand up against that for very long. It's pretty hard to resist it. And they really didn't. I can't, I can't think of anything, I mean, except for that weird skirt thing early on. And that would be a thing that I would say was like the trust thing. Once they saw for sure that Sophie had no intention of sexualizing these women in any way, Honestly, those comments basically stopped. I think they were just cautious and they didn't know us that well yet. And so they were being careful with their babies, which I can terribly appreciate, you know? That's absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. And especially as, as you said, they grew to trust you. So they let up on that. And yeah, they did. And then it was like, after those first two issues and like arguments about skirts, I think we never got another comment again. I think the only notes that were of any significance that Sophie got after those first like two issues and all the skirt comments was with Silica being a little too scary sometimes. I think I have some concerns about 
about Silica being too scary. Yes. I mean, I, I do too. I was shocked. And I think that just goes to the power of how great Sophie is that mostly people were just like, okay, she drew it. So it's cool. But I agree. I, I, when I first saw those Silica designs, I was like, they're never going to go for that. She's all dripping and the fingernails and the, they're there. No way. And then they're like, yep, pretty cool. And I was like, holy crap. Okay. Here, here we go. <laughs> how did you guys, when you were first starting to sort of concept out, like, especially this first arc? Because one of the big things about Gem is that it is completely ridiculous. It has so many things in the cartoon that just make no sense in the most wonderful kind of way. It's soap opera garbage. Did you guys have anything specific that you really wanted to do to keep in that spirit while still sort of making Gem a bit more grounded? Well, our pitch was definitely, and what we ended up doing was definitely that we sort of wanted to take what's basically the first two episodes that establishes Gem and that has the quote battle of the band sort of thing in it. And so we knew that we wanted to do that over six issues and that we would take it a lot slower and that we would be delving a lot more into the characters' lives and everything, but that that would be the basic framework that we would set up a battle of the bands type of scenario and we would build around that. And so that's just sort of what we did. And it was like, you know, it's, it's deeply ironic that one of my favorite issues is the, uh, food fighting stuff because I hate food fights in films but I knew that Sophie could draw it so so great so so great so that just sort of happened and then you know we just sort of went from there but um yeah no the uh we just tried to take things like the battle of the bands which it's not that that's an outdated concept per se it's not you still have those today but we thought what are some you know more modern sensibility of how that might happen you know the sort of youtube concert against a bigger band and like let's establish misfits like let's give the misfits even more of a sort of reason to be pissed that these sort of upstarts come in out of nowhere and start messing up their lives. So, you know, we made them these big stars. We made Gem and the Holograms big fans of them. Like, so they're really taken by surprise when they're not sort of welcome. Like, you know, it's just sort of building that stuff. I mean, we knew early on the cast is just so big that it was going to be trouble the more people we introduced and that we wanted to introduce a lot of them for the fans and for ourselves and that building all of those relationships was going to take a lot of page time. So we tried to settle on sort of one driving plot thing, in this case, establishing Gem and the Holograms and this Battle of the Bands concert, and then just populate it with all the character stuff we wanted to do around that one thrust, you know? We're talking about Battle of the Bands and my mind's just going blank and all I can think of is guitar motorcycles and I still can't believe they were in there. That was definitely a thing very early on, like uh, we got to get those in there. That's one of those things where Sophie says she wants that and she really does and then it comes time to draw it and she's like, oh God. What have I done? But not as bad as me giving Rio a motorcycle for which she wanted to throttle me and me putting them on a Ferris wheel twice in the same arc. So it's funny to think how nice she was to me at the beginning, because if I tried to do that now, she'd be like, no, change this. But back then she's like, oh, cute Kelly. So new. Issue three. Okay, I'll draw a Ferris wheel for her. By the time we got to issue five and there was a Ferris wheel, she was like, I can't even believe you. I was like, you don't even really have to show 
it just like the sketch of it in the background and then just them in the in the thing and you know sophie doesn't ever phone anything in so of course she drew it beautifully but yeah she was i think her joke was my hell is ferris wheels and then she's like ferris wheels with motorcycle carts and i was like yeah all right i'm very very sorry okay but that would be really cool though and one thing that definitely happened like while you guys were making things a little more grounded but still having like guitar motorcycles is you guys made some really big changes to sort of the gem formula including our new cool rio well you know that was i mean i think that just happened naturally as soon as you eliminate the weird triangle that makes everyone look like assholes he naturally becomes much better right like i didn't even have to do that much i just had to undo that triangle and it all sort of took care of itself and you also gave him a a real job a clearly stated employment well yeah i mean we, we we talked about it a lot the whole thing was you know that was one of the first things i said i was like you know i'm not gonna do that and john barber was like yes agreed i was like but what i'd like to do is in addition to not doing that like let's sort of flip the superman lois lane trope on its head and it's like if lois lane really likes clark kent and thinks superman is kind of a dick because you know jem is a pop star she just shows up whenever she leaves and and john was like so into it he loved it and i was like and that really helps us with yet another reason why jerica doesn't want to tell him that she's Jem because he doesn't really like Jem. He doesn't respect Jem. And then because we removed him from them a little bit and didn't make him this longtime friend, he also became a new potential boyfriend who's also sort of a threat as a reporter who you can't just tell these secrets to right out of the gate. And so, you know, it really just everything's just sort of firmed up really naturally from there. And then, you know, I did my best to like take some bits of who Rio was and like rebuild him better, stronger and faster so that uh, so, so that we didn't hate him. I know Chris Sims long ago was talking about how he he needed Rio to kick over the potted plant. So I wrote that into 10 and I was, you know, I sent it to Chris and I was like, here you go. It's the potted plant scene you always want. And he was like, I I wanted the potted plant scene so bad. He's like, but I didn't know what I needed was for him to pick it up and put it back. But that was the true difference, right? Between old Rio and new Rio. It's basically a metonymy of, of how Rio had changed. I mean, if anything, Rio is the greatest victim in the whole thing now, right? Because he's really a stand-up guy, you know, with a whole career. He's tanking his whole career if he doesn't... I mean, it's a scoop of the century to know that Jem is a lie. So if he doesn't come out with it, he's basically paying the ultimate price of friends and family and loved ones over himself, right? Character development! It's a thing. <laughs> I'm looking at our, our notes for the interview and all I can see next is Megane Eric. Oh, Megane Eric. Boyfriend number two. Yeah, introducing Eric to the equation in a world in which the misfits are already signed on to a record label. That seems like that was that must have been kind of a tricky thing to figure out. I feel like it wasn't that bad because the misfits are just always getting in so much trouble and creating Elise and making her like not really their fan. Like, ugh, this band is so troublesome. I would fire them in a second, except for they're popular and they sell records, right? So it's like Elise is sort of always looking for, you know, a way to get away from the misfits as a band. And so giving them that antagonist relationship with her created this great opening for Eric. And then, of course, Pizzazz's accident sort of gave him a chance to come into it a little bit more. We get to see him a little bit in Misfits 
five. It's a Jetta issue. So there's a lot of focus on Jetta and her past and everything. But it's also a little bit more like Misfits 1 in that it's also about all of them to sort of tie up the end of that miniseries. And uh, he's in that a little bit. But, you know, we haven't seen him much. And yet he's going to have a very interesting role in the crossover coming up. So I think you guys will enjoy that. So excited for more Meg on Eric. It's definitely going to be more classic villain than what we've seen so far. So maybe you can answer a burning question that we have, which is, do Eric and Tekrat live together? What's the situation there? Because Eric just keeps walking into his apartment. They definitely do not live together. Although it's funny, we, we've never seen Eric's apartment and that's sort of funny. I sort of like that idea, like maybe he sleeps in his car. We don't know. No, Tekrat would never lower himself to having roommates. That's not acceptable. Eric might have Tekra as a roommate just because it would be incredibly useful to him. But uh, yeah, no, Tekra would never go for that. Eric's far too messy and likes too many colors. Honestly, Tekra, I feel like Tekra must have been an interesting character to update just because you, whenever you have a character that is tied to the technology level of the time and what is more advanced than that, you always end up in a weird place. Because like Tekra invented Encarta, Tekra invented streaming video in the 80s. And now you've got to like up the ante with this guy. Yeah, I mean, well, the good news is he also invented time travel in the 80s. So, you know, he really did everything you could possibly do in the 80s. So it's not that much of an update. It's just like a realization. So Techrat's got a huge role in the crossover. And I'm so excited because that is one of my secret favorite characters that we just haven't gotten to use enough of because the comics are a bit more grounded. And because we only have so much time, you know, we've definitely leaned more into the fashion music fame character stuff than we have the sci-fi you know the sci-fi has sort of just been a footnote and the adventure stuff has sort of just been a footnote and I would say that the crossover really reverses that dynamic so it's very sci-fi adventure and I think we still get a lot of character stuff I although I would say the problem that I have with the crossover is mostly worry that my artists are gonna gonna walk off the book because they're like listen you can't draw that many people on a page it's impossible. Nobody should have to do it. I won't work under these conditions. Let me out. It's just so many characters. And poor Jen uh, Saint-Ange, she's, uh, she's doing issue two of the crossover, which is the sort of the heavier lifting uh, first issue of the crossover. It's where stuff really starts to get super intense and it somehow all happens in that issue. And, uh, you know, she just handles it so well, but I'm sure she curses my name every time she opens a script. Uh, I certainly would. But uh, so Tech Rat, I love writing Tech Rat. He just was so fun immediately. Like it's why writing Pizzazz and Kimber is really fun. And as much as I love Stormer, like, you know, extreme characters are a lot more fun to write. They're just, they can just do anything and they're sort of truth teller characters. They just say what's on their mind, which is always fun instead of like being nice, like, you know, Shayna and, and Jerrica, they're so nice and Storm or like, and I love those characters. Don't get me wrong. I love them. They're not as much fun to write because nice isn't the most fun. But uh, Tech Rat, I was a little nervous about it. And then he just, I don't know. It was like he spoke to me from beyond. Like, oh, this is what I sound like. And I was like, yes. I was like, I get it. But you're going to see, you're actually, though Tech Rat has a really big role in the crossover, it's, uh, it's a little bit different than the Tech Rat 
we've known before. So uh, any tech rat is good tech rat. So speaking of like really loud, extreme characters, um, we really love cool, multifaceted pizzazz. Yeah, it's it's nice to see pizzazz actually have um, personality besides evil planner. Yeah, I have to say, if I was going to pick one complaint about the cartoon, and I don't even mean, like, I, I get why it is. I mean, it was a children's cartoon, you know, it was it was supposed to be a very specific thing. So, you know, it's not like, oh, I wish they'd done it differently. But it was definitely the thing, the number one thing for me when going back in and being like, okay, we're making something modern, and it's still hopefully going to be for kids, but it's also going to be for adults. Like, what's the thing? It was definitely to make the misfits and pizzazz most of all make them not sort of seen chewing villains and give them real lives and real personalities and real motivations for why they would want to drop light rigging on someone although they didn't actually do that which I tried to give them some you know some dimension here on you know pizzazz might have wanted or wished that the light rigging would get on them but she didn't actually do it and she didn't actually tell anyone to do it so there's some deniability there, you know, in action versus wishing. And I think we've all wished the blood of our enemies, right? It's just a thing we do. Um, <laughs> there's a difference between wishing it and actually going out and, and uh, undoing the light rigging and trying to kill someone. So that's been like the interesting thing to me about Pizzazz is that it feels like she's benefited the most from this idea of actually giving these characters like multiple facets and character depth. It seems like she's really gone a lot from like the very beginning when we had something that was a bit more aloof, something that was a bit closer to like just Raptor Shriek Nightmare pizzazz from the cartoon. And I, I always keep thinking about that early idea just as sort of that character sketch of how we first saw her versus where she is now as like den mother of the greatest band ever. I mean, listen, I'm a really big advocate of the concept that your hero is only as good as your villain. And I'm also a really big advocate of every villain thinks they're the hero. So in your own movie of your life, you don't look at yourself and go, oh yeah, I'm the scene-chewing villain. You go, no, I'm the put-upon hero and these people are out to get me. And so that's just the approach with Pizzazz. It's like she doesn't see herself as the bad guy. Like she sees herself as a flawed person for sure. And she's got a lot of baggage, but you know, she doesn't think she's a bad guy. And so who is that? What does that look like? And the really wonderful strength, while I think one of the great strengths of Jem and the holograms are that they're actual sisters, right? There's an incredible trust and they're growing up together and they're sort of in jokes that they have with one another and how comfortable they are. And the fact that they can easily share a secret like the Synergy Tech and not worry, except for maybe worrying that Kimber will accidentally say something like nobody's worried about betrayal or anything. And that's like a beautiful, beautiful thing that I tried to really build on this literal sisterhood that they had, right? At the same time, time, one of the most interesting things about the misfits are that they're literal misfits and that they can have come together to build their own family. They're all sort of separate. They don't have, in general, the sort of ties, except for Stormer having Craig, which sort of explains why she's the nicest and the most centered and least homicidal of all of these guys. Blaze also has some ties, but as we saw in her issue, 
that relationship has probably become very strained and she's not really in her life anymore. You know, these people needed a family and they came together and they found each other. And it's an even better motivation for why they defend it so vehemently because they worked really hard to get it. Whereas a lot of things come easily to Gem and the Holograms, including the natural bonds of literal sisterhood. These guys had to really find it for themselves and build it. And Pizzazz especially had to find it and bring together this family. And she's not going to let anybody take it from her. Uh, least of all, you know, dumb Gem and the Holograms. Okay. First of all, though, how dare you break my heart bringing in just the real heavy hitter of Pizzazz's parents? Oh, God. That already made me sad in the cartoon. And then this happened. That is not fair. I sort of liked also like, you know, we see we see Pizzazz's dad in the cartoon. And then we get a bit of that in the Dark Gem arc in the comics. And you're really sort of hate him for, you know, not not seeing who she is and what she needs and being there for her or whatever. But at the same time, the mother is really the worst villain because she's just completely MIA, not even offering to send the money. Like, come on. I was real mad at her. I love the extra touch of Pizzazz spending Christmases with her mother and also being Jewish. She doesn't even go here. Exactly. Exactly. That's how disengaged she is with this daughter. Like, oh, sure, Christmases or whatever. Like, I mean, just awful. Just awful woman. I suppose the question you got to answer when you're writing a fairly grounded Gem and the Holograms comic is how aren't the misfits in jail forever? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's like, have you guys ever heard Sophie talk about that? in interviews like that was her thing when she was a kid she was like why are they in jail they should be in prison like she was really upset about it well look it's amazing what lawyers can do if you pay them enough yeah i mean if you've got money if you're the rich one percent which they technically are you know you can get away with just the side of murder unfortunately and sometimes murder but i mean i i was careful to sort of you know they don't do a lot of direct things that would get them in trouble for realsy real incarcerated. Yeah, Clash maybe, but not them. So, I mean, you know, even the things they do in the the Stingers arc, I guess maybe they could get in big trouble for what they did with that cake, even though it was sort of an accident. You know, having to evacuate a boat that's partially on fire is is pretty serious. But um, putting a spy into Gem and the Holograms and having them sabotage a concert, it's not going to get you put in jail. Yeah, there's definitely enough where if it's not plausible deniability, there's definitely enough distance and circumstance where a lawyer could make a compelling case to get it all dismissed. Yeah, especially a rich white person's lawyer, unfortunately. All right. So are there any other specific characters we want to talk about before we just sort of get into like a general retrospective, you guys? I can't believe with the deep stingers fan base here, we haven't had more talk of that. Mackenzie's been restraining herself pretty well. We're very proud of her. I love Riot so much. Did you want did you want to talk about Riot, Mac? Riot's so pretty. In all incarnations, he's just perfect. He's such an asshole and I love him so much. It's funny because I fought Sophie really hard on the long hair design because I have a thing where I don't really like long hair on dudes. And it was such a good decision that she made. Like, it worked so well. And especially on Meredith's version of him, it, it was just... 
It was so perfect. So, so perfect. I don't even know if I've gone back and told her that she was right. I probably should, but she was, Sophie was right. As in most things, Sophie was right. Like all of them, it's just like this long princess hair and he just does things with it. It's amazing. There's nothing about it that isn't amazing. Mink sort of turned out to be my favorite stinger though, especially with the hat and just, she's so easy to like be funny with, with the sort of accent, like the slightly stilted English and occasionally Occasionally getting English phrases wrong. I love it. And I love the way both Meredith drew her. And I also think that Giselle's got a great style, but her style can be a little sexy. I mean, we know she draws Menage a three, but on Minx, it really works. Like it doesn't feel like overtly sexy. It doesn't feel outside of the gem and the holograms aesthetic, but it just feels like it's right in Giselle's wheelhouse. Like Minx with this long, crazy hair, beautiful tan, and always in a bikini. It's hilarious to me. So I really enjoy it. And honestly, like with Minx and and Riot, there was a lot to work with in the cartoon, but Rapture had like half an episode where she pretended to be Houdini and that was about it. You guys had like a lot to just sort of make up with Rapture, it seems. We did. And it was really, it's been really fun. I mean, my biggest problem with the Stingers arc is just we ended up with too many characters on the board. And I feel like, I still feel like we told a great story. I'm really happy with it. I love it. But I do feel like some characters got some short shrift because we just had so much going on. And I feel like Minx and Rapture definitely fell into the same sort of role that Jetta and Roxy initially had, which is just sort of these hilarious thugs, right? Hilarious, beautiful thugs hanging out in the background, being best friends and saying hilarious things. And like, that was it. But they get a little bit more to do um, in this in this current arc um, and in the last issue. But they're not really making an appearance, I don't think. it's. I've still got two issues to write. But in the crossover, I don't think they're going to show up, which pains me deeply because I love them. In an ideal world, every issue would be easy to draw and it would involve like 48 pages each. I mean, the bigger problem becomes, to be honest, with the characters, the issues that I had the most trouble with in the Stinger's arc, I felt like, were when we'd introduced Rhea, and so we were trying to give her room to like, you know, because we all know who she's supposed to become, right? And then we had Shayna in Milan, and then we had the holograms in LA and we had the stingers in LA and then we also had misfits in LA. There were like at least minimum five different sort of core locations that we were having and for 20 pages that's a real big problem but when you have this many characters and you limit the locations like the problem we're having I feel like in the crossover is that we're all basically one location but it's so many characters and they're in every scene. And so what do you do for the artist where it's like, hey, I'm sorry, but 11 people are reacting to this news. So, you know, do your best. And <laughs> it's just really hard. And so the crossover does in issue three, it sort of separates them and it becomes more manageable. But the first two issues are really like every page has almost all the characters on it. And it's just like, what? It's it's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, sometimes it's a writer you like you want to make 
that easier for everyone and you want it to not be crowded. And so you just want to like let the core people talk. But I sort of hate that when that happens, right? Like, oh yeah, these other people might as well just be furniture. They don't ever say anything. So we'll just leave them off panel. But you know, then it just kind of becomes about these core people, but it's really an ensemble cast. And so, you know, you want to try to lean into that and give everyone some authority and some say in the scene. And I, I gotta say, you actually do an amazing job at that. Cause there are so many group scenes where it's just huge and everybody gets a saying and you know exactly who it's coming from just based on their diction. And that's always been kind of amazing to, to read. Thank you. I try. I, some people have voices who are a little more similar or attitudes who are a little more similar. Like I feel like Jerrica and Shayna can sometimes be hard to parse out and, and even Stormer to a degree, the same way that Pizzazz and Kimber might say the same thing. Like, so there are some crossovers, but I try really hard to make them feel like the right person, what that person would be thinking about, how that person would react and the way they sound. And I, I try pretty hard. So let's sort of run through some of the arcs that we've had here because, wow, I was just looking back at everything this morning and my God, we've covered a lot of things. I mean, we had we had Showtime where we started everything. We had Viral, which was all about our son, Tech Rat. We had Rio Pacheco Boy Reporters, a special issue. Then there was Dark Jam. Dark Jam. Dark Jam. Uh, Chicha Changes, Enter the Stingers, and now we're on Truly Outrageous. And that's not including the fact that we had like a Christmas issue, a Valentine's issue, and two annuals. It's been a lot. Oh, boy. I counted it up. It was like 600 pages of gem comics or something. Oh, our cups runneth over. Like, I still can't believe that we've had this much gem as it is. I, I love the book, obviously. But it just seems like in this kind of world, we would get like maybe a mini. Right. I wasn't even counting the Misfits miniseries. My God. You know what? I'm wrong. I think it's more like, I think if you include the Misfits through the end of the Misfits miniseries and the gem quote ongoing series, it's 744 pages. We'll be getting at least another 120 for the crossover. And then I think there's something else definitely on the horizon that you guys will enjoy that I can't say much about. And then I'm working on another thing that I hope will be a go. So we'll see. So it's, it's hardly ending. I mean, because the way comics are, you sort of have to make a big deal about ending so that you can make a big deal about the new thing and hope that it brings in new people and refreshes things. But it sort of feels very disingenuous to me to make a big deal about the ending when, you know, I'm hip deep in a thing that's in no way a reboot, that's a complete continuation of, you know, I mean, if, if sales weren't depressed, if comics weren't the way they are, the crossover would have just been a regular crossover, right? It would have been ish gem issues 27, 28, 29, and it would have been misfits six, seven, and eight. And they just would have crossed over together in this cool infinite thing. But because of the way comics are and this very frustrating thing where you have to constantly put new number ones on things and reboot, we had to do it this way. I have very mixed feelings about that. And it doesn't just apply to Gem, it applies to all comics. Yeah, I feel like that a lot of the way the comics are structured, especially in how they have to look at sales and how those sales are in fact correlated and counted, it seems like a lot of the comics industry data is being held together by Elmer's glue and duct tape and like a couple of sticks. Listen, there's no way we're lucky enough to have duct tape. That's scotch tape at best. 
duct tape would be a dream. No, I mean, I think that's completely true. And it's this very frustrating thing where, and I hope fans know I'm not criticizing them. I am both a fan and a creator, and I've been a critic. I can see it from literally all sides. As a critic, you know, or or let's use issue 24 as a great example. As a critic on a comic site, you're being paid almost nothing, if anything. And you're definitely encouraged by your bosses to review things that people want to talk about. And so reviewing issue 24 of an ongoing series, even though that turns out to be the issue in which the gem property does something the cartoon never did, which is reveal herself to Rio, which is a big freaking deal. Nobody wants to review that issue. Issue 24 of an ongoing cult series that has a small following to begin with. But then as creators, you're like, we can't even get people to review this issue. Now, we can't get people to review this issue because people are not paid well to review comic book issues. And because the market is small enough that there aren't a ton of eyes on a review of a cult comic book. So, you know, it's nobody wants it to be that way. I'm sure there are reviewers out there who love Gem and would love to write it, but they have to think about who's going to read it. If only 10,000 people monthly read Gem, what fraction of them are going to read the review, right? So the creators and the critics are all stuck in the same loop. And then if poor fans who both hate this situation and help create it, right? They tend to slowly drop off. There's a war of attrition on comics and it's just the way it is. So every month you lose readers and the only way you can seem to get them back is through launching a number one, doing a reboot, doing a big crossover event, killing somebody. You know, these are these are the ways in which you can draw media attention and thus heighten your sales. And yet these are the same things that fans say they hate. And it's like, I get it. I get it. I, I've, I've been that same person like you you don't want to see these sort of false manipulations but what are you going to do it's the only way you can get the new readers it's a real it's a real bitch of a situation i'm really glad to sort of hear that too because i i feel like just from my hunch is that a lot of the people who follow the gem book are people who don't really get into a lot of comics it's not like a regular they may not have like a regular pull list so it it can be really important to sort of look at these kind of background politics when you're talking about why x didn't get to do this why this character was or wasn't introduced and how these are working. So I, I really value uh, that we got to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, thanks. I didn't want to go too deep baseball, but, you know, I really appreciate the fans of Jim on so many levels, including, I agree, you're right, they're not necessarily typical comic fans. And yet we have this really like thriving, passionate base of people who love the comics. And at the same time, I feel like those people who are sort of being the most hurt by the concept of, oh, the ongoing series is ending, because they're the people who probably understand the least that it's not really as much change as you think it is. It's mostly marketing to give us a new thing that we can talk about, that we can get PR on. Hopefully we can bring on new readers who feel like it's a good jumping on point. But like literally this crossover, it's definitely going to be different than everything you've seen before. And it's awesome, but it's totally maintaining all the integrity of the comic thus far. It's just a new adventure that's going to be a lot more sci-fi shaped. Just reiterate something. It's completely awesome awesome that there are so many people who don't read a whole lot of comics on the regular, like reading this book. That's actually like super awesome. So not to not to like disparage that at all. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's really cool. I Listen, I want comic fans to love us too, but there's sort of nothing more rewarding than knowing that someone goes out of their way to buy your comic book, even though they don't read a lot of comics. It's awesome. Is it a conscious choice to fit in so many like weird tiny references 
to the cartoon, like the freaking candy coated zips. It definitely is. But I honestly have to say that's mostly Sophie. She loves that kind of stuff. And I like it too. But mine tend to be a little larger, like, let's make sure to get this character in or, you know, let's make this be so-and-so or something. I just am so worried about the macro. Like, sometimes I'm not focused on sort of the micro, like, should we have candy-coated zips? But Sophie loves that stuff especially, and she really loves to to put that stuff in. And I love it when she does it. Although that is a funny licensor story because they had problems with both the candy-coated zips and the, the Biffos. And healthy cereal? Not They didn't have a problem with healthy cereal, but I guess they looked up online. They didn't know what candy coated zips was or the Biffos. And they didn't, I guess they didn't know that they were just specific gem references, maybe. And so then they thought they meant something weird because of something they looked up online. And we're like, literally, they're references from the gem cartoon. Like, they're gem references. They're not, not referencing anything else. And they were like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. Like, you just got to take it out. And then some of them got through anyway. I don't remember how. And so. So, you know, that ship has sailed. It's out there now. Can't do anything about it. And I guess when there was no like big controversy, then they were like, all right, just let it happen. Whatever. I think my favorite deep cut was Rama the Llama. Well, that was me. (laughs) Yeah. What the heck? That was me. And that was specifically from Meredith. She goes, if you don't write that llama in there, I'm just going to draw it. I was like, all right, I'll write it in. And I was like, you know what? We're, we're ending, quote unquote. Let's just get it in there. They can have a llama. Sophie drew in horse stables I did not approve. So might as well put a llama in there. A pink llama. Well, you know, maybe it was the lighting. We don't, we don't know. Maybe it's a white llama, but there's a purple light there. We don't know. I mean, I guess if people can have naturally pink and blue hair, then. Thank you. Yes. Pink llama. I guess I guess that's not too far out of the wheelhouse. And we did go with that because we talked a lot about that when we showed the little holograms. We were like, should they have like normal colored hair? When we were like, well, definitely the show says like they had this hair since they were young, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, I remember the Sailor Moon live action tokusatsu series did that, I think, where like all the characters just had like, you know, black and dark brown hair, except when they transformed and they got these absurd wigs. I think part of our decision was that, I mean, it's not a concern with Sophie really because of the way she draws, but we're just like, listen, it'll be really easy to identify who's who if they've got their hair. And it's, it's also more fun. Like, let's be real. Definitely, if there's one thing you want to do in gym, you want to make it as ridiculous as possible. Yes, for sure. For sure. So was there anything in particular that, I mean, I I know we kind of touched on why this happens, but uh, was there anything that really stands out as just like the one that got away that you didn't like a storyline that you wanted to do that you didn't have time for? I mean, I know this is kind of like a weird quasi thing that you may or may not be able to talk about because obviously there's still gem stuff happening. Any characters you wanted to bring in or uh, any story arcs or story ideas that you wanted to do? Well, I think the thing that, and I've talked about this, and I think I even commented on this on your cast one time when you guys were talking about the Inner the Stingers arc. I mean, the biggest thing for me is that I feel like that arc got away from me a little bit because we knew we were going to end with 26 And I had been assuming we were going to get instead of, you know, we've got four extra pages in 26. So we've got a little more room, but that was going to be a four or five issue arc to me instead of a three issue plus four pages arc. So Shayna was originally not going to have come back 
by the end of the Stinger's arc. That was going to last a little longer. She was going to be in Milan a little longer. There was going to be more separation. There was going to be more time for Rhea to be with the band before Shayna came back. So Rhea would have still come to the holograms by the end of the Stinger's arc, but Shayna wouldn't have been back. But we had to cut that short because they're just, I knew I had to get them all back together for the end. So that wasn't going to work to do that anymore. And so I had to re- plot how that was all going to work out. I had to bring Sheena back home much sooner than I wanted to. And because I did that, I had to really cut the legs out from under the Fox arc a little bit. There should have been more to that. That shouldn't have ended as abruptly as it did. So that's my big regret there. About how much lead time do you tend to have on that in terms of like finding out when you're going to have to cut things around and move them? Well, I mean, it was plenty of time. I can't remember exactly when we knew that we were going to, I mean, I knew we were probably going to end, but even when I was plotting the Stinger's arc, I thought we're maybe only going to get the Stinger's arc and one more arc, but I thought it would be a full arc. And then it became, okay, probably we're going to end at 25. So then I was only get two issues to wrap it up. So it's really a kind of a domino effect from there then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was like, oh, God, I was like, okay, well, 25, like, I get it that numerically, that makes sense. But my argument, and I went back to talking to Sarah Gatos and our editor and IDW and Hasbro, who I should tell you, Hasbro wants it to go on forever. I mean, they're very sad because they love the book. But it's just the reality of comics. It's just a tough monthly attrition with the sales. And and it happens on every book, by the way. Like, I don't want people to think, oh, Gem's some huge failure. It's amazing that we made it this long. X-Men books and all these books, these, these books get released all the time and they don't make it 26 issues because this is how it goes. Unless your name's Batman or Star Wars, you fight monthly attrition no matter who you are. And if you're a smaller cult book and at a more indie publisher, you can't usually fight it nearly as long because you don't start with 50,000 in sales. So we did a really good job. Everyone's incredibly happy and impressed with how well we did um, for a book that doesn't have like a giant multi-million dollar movie machine behind it or something, you know, or an ongoing cartoon or something. We had nothing. We're on our own, you know. Anyway, so... In this case, it was, we were only going to get to 25 issues. And I made this big case that, wait a minute, have you guys looked at how the trades are going to be? Because that's not going to work. You know, you're going to end up with, because Enter the Singers is a five-issue arc, you're not going to want to add anything really to that trade, especially because it's actually going to already be seven issues because you're not going to want to put ch ch changes in with it can't go in with dark gem that ship had already sailed so it was gonna have to go in there somewhere and they're not gonna put more than seven issues in a trade so it became okay so we do seven issues for enter the singers and then we make a new trade for the last volume so then we got issue 26 back in the mix with some extra pages and then you know i'm sure there will be some extras in there i'm working on that now with them what else is going to go in there so that whole time over a process of weeks it was moving around as to how much we were going to get. And I was having to change what it was. And I'd already written at least the script for 19, the first Enter the Stingers issue. So I'd already set things in motion and I had this plot and then I had to go into the plot and like retool it to make it all fit. It was enough time to make it work. But when I look back, 
I feel like there were things in Enter the Stingers that I just wanted to do that I didn't get to do. And that bums me out. Well, yeah, when you're juggling chainsaws, I mean, you're allowed to pat yourself on the back for only dropping one or two of them. If you lose only a couple of fingers, that's still pretty good. You got like eight fingers left. But we got most of the cameos in of characters I really wanted to see. I would have liked to have gotten video in there. Instead, I just got the reference to her name being ridiculous, which I love. I mean, I know a lot of people wanted to see dance. And while I would have liked to see some cool designs for that character, I'm not particularly fond of that character or that character's story. Like, <laughs> Oh, you heard it here first, folks. Vindication. Listen, it's a very, I mean, I'm not saying we couldn't have updated it, but it's a very ableist story. Like dance in retrospect really comes off like an asshole. I mean... I mean, what do you guys think? You think dance is the greatest? What? Not hater. Oh, good. Oh, good. Good, good. It just really doesn't make any sense. It's one of the things I really don't like about the original show, like that idea. And, you know, if you were ever going to use that in a more modern context, you'd never use a character like dance. You'd have Gem and the Holograms like changing their look and like having a whole dance troupe behind them and becoming more Beyonce or something, right? You wouldn't have, oh, let's have some white girl go out and do interpretive dance to our songs. Like, duh. No, I don't like it. Never, never liked it. And like, I'm not saying she's not allowed to go through an emotional thing if she thinks she can't use her legs, but it's really some ableist garbage in there. I don't like it. Oh, God. Yeah, that episode is not aged at all. It wasn't great when it came out, but oh, boy. Yeah. And listen, I give mad props to the cartoon for tackling issues and like really not shying away from all sorts of stuff. Uh Oh, my cuckoo clock again. Um, now it'll be 11. Now it'll be 11 bongs. I'm sorry if you can hear it. Um, so, you know, you got to give the credit to the cartoon, tons of respect, but you know, not everything holds up well. And I mean, I think we find that for things we love all the time and things change. And especially for a kid's cartoon, like it was a very specific thing, you know, and it did so many things so well, like, the sort of diversity that you really weren't seeing back then. And, or now. Yeah, or now. <laughs> I mean, the, the focus on women, like, it was just really groundbreaking in many ways. And it's uh, it's great. Well, that's what I always really liked about the book. I feel like the comic book has continued that idea and really further refined it for sort of the modern audience, like introducing the different body types, the different gender expressions and sexualities. It's been a really great sort of way to carry that on and, and increase that visibility of people that you're just not seeing in a lot of other media. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely our sort of modus operandi from just day one was if Jem was a cartoon today, if they were making it today, what are the ways in which they would try to push the boundary? And the obvious things were more diversity, body diversity, like what are the ways in which a cartoon in the 80s couldn't have done it? You know, I was lucky to have the right partner for starting out and it was great. You know, we never talked about Mad Mardigan. Secret star of the comic. I love Matt Mardigan so much. He's a very good cat. Very good. Superstar cat. We're trying to get out like Pizzazz's secret nerdiness for like fantasy geek things through, you know, Sophie drew those figures in her room 
and then Mad Mardigan and then her saying watch classic films and things, which, you know, Willow being a classic to people that young. And then uh, I think I also put Willow and them wanting to name the cat Willow in the annual. And a lot of people assumed I meant Willow from Buffy, which is a fair assumption, especially since I'm a huge Buffy fan. But really, that was a reference to Mad Mardigan and Willow, the movie. So, uh, yeah, he's the greatest. So last question before we sort of wrap up and start talking about where we can find all of your different books right now, because there's going to be a lot. Do you have any suggestions or anything that you'd particularly like to say to sort of the the broader gem fandom of the best ways to support the gem book? This is not going to work for a lot of you who are not sort of Wednesday warriors who have a pull and all of that. But literally the best thing you can do for the comic, the most visible way to support it. And I'm not telling you you have to do this. Everyone absorbs in their own way. Everyone participates in their own way. But just so you know the facts, the literal best way to help us is to subscribe, to pre-order the books. Is that something that would work uh, with like online things like Comixology as well? Or does it prefer the uh, in-person physical subs? A pre-order is always good no matter what. But to be honest, and this goes back to that whole everything's held together with scotch tape, not duct tape thing. They really don't take digital numbers that seriously these days. If they're really big, like a book like Ms. Marvel has a really big digital following, as I understand it. And that seems to be like enough to be a percentage to really matter to them. So far, print sales really do still seem to be what drives everything. And I, again, there's no admonishment here. I read digitally. I can't have that many books in my house. Like I don't have that much room. So it's not to lecture anyone. It's just to tell you what I know. Paper helps more than digital. Pre-ordering no matter what is better. If you can pre-order, like if you don't have a shop near you, but you order online, you can pre-order from them too. You can put in a hold with a lot of pre-order places online or at a local shop. I know you can pre-order trades on like Amazon. I don't know if you can really do that with single issues that are print. That doesn't seem like something you can probably do there. I would say secondary to that, review the book online, talk about it, share it with friends, get people into it. You know, it's funny as someone who's online a lot talking about myself and my work as a function of PR, you know, you feel like you've reached everyone in the world and they're sick of hearing about it. But it always shocks me when I come across someone and they're like, what, there's a gem comic book? And you're like, where have you been for two years, dude? Like, where? Where? What rock do you live under? This is all I talk about, you know? So sharing it with people, you never know who loved gem and who would love to read a great comic book about it. So, you know, just telling everyone, talking it up. I would also say keeping it positive, which doesn't mean you can't have issues with things we do. I criticism is fine and you're certainly not obligated to like everything we do, but you know, there is a fairly toxic thread running through the gem fandom that I don't quite understand. It's so so the antithesis of everything gem is, it seems to me, and yet it keeps popping up this small vocal Thing. I don't know what that's really about, but I, I don't really think it's the spirit of Gem, to be honest. So I would say keeping it fun is probably a, a good way to help keeping it positive for the fandom. All right. So, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a huge blast having you on and talking to you. Thank you. I'm sorry I talked so much. I had a really great time. I mean, we had you on to talk. 
I know, I know. But, you know, sometimes I get carried away. I had a really great time, though. I love your guys' cast. So thanks for having me. So you're writing on a whole lot of different books right now. And I think you've got some trades coming out, too, or at the very least, like I know Mega Princess just came out with its last issue. So is it possible to condense that at all to give people an idea of where they can find your books and what you have worked on in particular right now? Beyond Gem and Misfits, which you guys all know about, my big book right now really is Hawkeye. That trade comes out next month, I believe. And um, we're on issue six right now. It's a really great book. It's definitely different than Gem, but if you like comics, I would say give it a try because it's got a lot of the same really fun, positive vibe to it. So you can find that everywhere comics are sold. I'm doing the upcoming Phasma miniseries for Star Wars. That's not out until the fall, though. So we've got a little while on that. Mega Princess is a five issue kids series. Definitely all ages friendly. I think it's really great. It's with art by Brianne Drowhard. She's amazing. Uh, the trade for that won't be out until August, I think. But all five issues of those you can find anywhere in the stores. I've got some other things coming on, but that's really all that's out right now. So I did A-Force, which I love. If you guys like Hawkeye, you might want to go check out A-Force. It's pretty cool too. Yeah, Mega Princess was super good, by the way. I picked it up after, I think, listening to you and Chris talking about it. And I just like, I fell in love with Mega Princess. That's going to wrap it up for us. The Gem Jam comes out every Sunday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube. We are also on Twitter and Tumblr. You can find us at the Gem Jam just about everywhere except on Twitter where we are at Gem Jam Cast. If you like what we do and you want to support us, a like, rating, review, subscribe, comment, uh, wherever you find our podcast is super great. It's really helpful, helps our metrics, helps us get discovered, and it helps us talk more about Gem and the Hollow. If you would like to support us financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash the gem jam for a couple bucks a month. You can help support us. Uh, You can also help support our other projects like I Will Fight You, which is one of our other podcasts. So until next time, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And I'm Kelly. And this has been the gem jam where we remind you, keep your friends close and your outrageousness closer.